The problem is, not that Jesus does good things. It's not that he brought joy and banished shame when he turned water into wine in the very beginning of this story, the story that John writes. It's not that he met a Samaritan woman a couple of a chapter or so later and he breaks down all the racial and gender biases by engaging with her. It's not that he healed the, sto- the son of a wealthy court uh, official. It's not that he healed on the Sabbath, breaking all of those religious taboos. It's not that he fed 5,000 people and had food left over. All of that just in the first couple of chapters of John's story. It's that Jesus claims a oneness with God. That's what he's in trouble for. And yet he points to the Hebrew Scriptures, the Bible that the, the, all the Jews have, that we now call the Old Testament. And he points to the fact that God is talking in a number of places about the connection between human beings and God. It's an ancient story. It goes right back to the very first story we've got with a story about people in the garden. And God says, let us make human beings to be like us, in our image. Like it or not, we are in the image of our parents, our mums and our dads. And our kids are in our image if we've got them. Like it or not, not only do they look like us, they start doing stuff like we do it. Which, you know, some is good, some not so good. There's not much you can do. That's just, we are connected deeply. And Jesus is saying, as all the stories are saying, that's the people of God. In fact, in the eastern part of the church, now you know that a thousand years ago, anybody remember a thousand? No. As a thousand years ago, the church split in two and we went east and west. And there's all, it's a fascinating and terrible story. But in the Eastern Church, they paid great deal of attention to this idea and they call it divinization. And it's the idea that the purpose of human life is for you and I to be like God, to be godlike. We're supposed to grow into that. And they're all over it. In fact, if you go to an Eastern Orthodox church, a Russian Orthodox, Serbian Orthodox, any of the, the groups, they, one of the things they do is they have lots of things like this on the wall. Icons. Now this is probably the world's most famous icon. It's by Andrei Rublev, and it's a 15th century icon. And you can see it's, it's been battered around a bit. It's had a few restorations over the years. And like many house restorations, you probably think they maybe should have left it alone. But anyway, it looks like that now, but it still glows. The idea of, of icons was, was that they would be an, a, a window into the way the world truly is. This is uh, very famous because it's, it's believed to be, and, and there's so little known about it, um, but it's believed to be an icon of the Trinity. Um, and, and so there's all sorts of reasons why one of those people would be God the Father, one would be God the Son, and one would be God the Spirit. You can read all about it. In fact, I just looked at it today. The Wikipedia entry is not bad on helping you unpack it and some of the amazing history of it. 
One of the stories, I'm not sure it's in the Wikipedia entry or not, one of the stories is that, that thing in the middle of the, 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 the painting, um, down the bottom, there's a, you see a, 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 like a rectangle on the side of the table? That's, that's a patch that's been put in there. And originally there was a hole there. And one of the speculations is that the hole contained a mirror. So that anybody who looked at the icon joined the circle by being the fourth person in that circle. What an amazing idea that the nature of God includes the nature of us. And you know, you, and you can buy this icon. If you ever look up icons on, to buy on the internet, this is the first one you'll see. So maybe you could buy one and stick a mirror on it yourself because I don't, nobody knows whether it's true. It's a speculation, but it kind of fits, doesn't it? It's a really interesting idea that maybe that was what Rubelef wanted in the first place. The point of existence, the way Jesus is talking about it here and the way the Eastern Church talks about it, the point of existence is oneness, the unity of everything. Now we know the opposite of oneness because we experience it a lot. It's total disconnection. It's total aloneness. The suicide rate in our country is as high as it is because of the disconnection that we have amongst ourselves. That people get to the point where life is so desperate that not only do they consider taking their own life, but they realise that it wouldn't make any difference in the world. In fact, the world might be better off if I wasn't in it. So disconnected that when people do this and leave behind people they love, doesn't seem to, they don't seem to be able to manage the idea that they're going to be missed. That's the kind of disconnection that we, we experience. Isolation and loneliness, we're discovering through research and through common sense, is one of the great killers. You shorten your life by being lonely. You shorten your life by smoking. You shorten your life by overeating. You sh- and you shorten your life by being lonely. Something is wrong with the sole individual person with no connection with other people. It just isn't the way we're built. It's not the way we're supposed to be. It it turns out, I've been reading a book called The Secret Life of Trees. And it turns out that trees pine. Anyone? Pine. Thank you. When they're not with other trees. They don't grow as well. They don't. They don't communicate. They communicate through their roots. It's an extraordinary story, and there's all um, information in this book. is just full of wonderful stuff. But one of them is that trees are not supposed to be by themselves. So when we have street trees, they're all pining. They're all in trouble because they're not close enough together, and they're better off in clumps rather than in um, in uh, in rows. And in fact, they're discovering that that if you want to plant a plantation, even though it's better in rows for our machines to get in and chop them down, the trees grow better if they're in clumps. So you've got to decide, what is the most economical? Is it more economical to have them growing slower, but I can chop them down quicker because I can get the machines in, or do I want them to grow faster and stronger, and, but where they might be worth more and, you know, what an imagine, what a thing to have to, to, to calculate. There's a oneness of existence that is the centre of everything. 
And the way Jesus talks about it here is central to it because he does, they keep saying to him, who are you? They want to know which box they can put him in. And he keeps pointing to the things that are happening. He keeps, he says, yeah, but what about looking about what is happening, what I'm doing? For Jesus, the whole idea of being a human being in touch with God would to be in touch with everything. So you engage with people. Jesus was, his idea of faith it was embodied. It was all about us in our bodies doing things, not just believing things in our head. And the, the icon of the Trinity, um, it, the, the original word for the Trinity that was developed in the third century was, was a Greek word for circle dance. So the problem with this icon is they're not moving. And, and they couldn't make icons where people moved in, in that time. We could now, if we made an icon now, we could make it on video and people would be constantly moving because that's the whole idea of it. There's no sort of, nothing is said, everything is changing and growing and moving in together. It's what the Celtic Christians understood and, and the revival of the Celtic experience of Christianity uh, it goes to this all the time. It's that everything in the world is sacred. And so Celtic Christians, particularly all through the British Isles, have special places that they go. Not far from where I was born is St. Non's uh, Well, which is supposed to be a place of great healing. And it's surrounded by stones and it's, been, it's, it's a, a little spring that's been flowing for centuries and centuries. And it's a sacred place. But when you look at what they, the Celtic Christians talk about, they say, well, everything actually is sacred. If we just paid attention, who God is and how God is, is evident everywhere in the intricate nature of things, in the coming together of everything. And Jesus said it a couple of chapters later. When he was praying, he says, I want to pray to, he says, praying to God, I want to pray that everyone might be one. Just as you and I, God, Father, an intimate name for God, just as you and I are one, we kind of think the same, we feel the same, we're connected. That's what oneness is, isn't it? It's a kind of deep connection. You can have a oneness with somebody as a friend or as a lover or as a sibling and, and that you can't actually explain it, but it's there. You kind of, you get the same jokes. I was at a 60th birthday party last night in which the speeches were, as they often are, interminable. And uh, I was standing next to Jan and my partner, and every now and then something would be said, which I, would, I found absurdly funny. And I couldn't look at her because I knew she would be thinking the same thing and we wouldn't be able to control, you know, we'd had a couple of drinks, wouldn't be able to control ourselves. So I refused to look at her, but I knew that she was thinking the same thing because we both would have thought that same thing was funny. There's a oneness in the way we think about those sorts of things. And that's, that's a great joy, that's a great part of our relationship is that we often find things absurd, unfortunately often at the most inappropriate times, but what can you do? A oneness, the oneness of, of a good, that's what Jesus is talking about and he wants that for everyone, but not for everyone one-on-one, -on -one, but for everyone kind of all together. In a minute we're going to say some prayers for mothers. And that's the one thing we know about each of us sitting here is we have one or we had one. And that each one of those women went through actual labour. They laboured hard for us to appear. 
And then they cared for us, well or badly, with joy or in sadness, deeply depressed or full of life. They cared for us until we could move on to the next stage of our lives. All of us. And some of us here have done that for others, have been mothers. It's, it's already there, that deep connection. One more thing. In the mid-17th century, they were struggling to try and link the two churches together, the one in Scotland and the one in England. And if you know anything about British history, Scotland and England, you know. In fact, the Scots all voted for, uh, against Brexit and the, British, uh, the, the English generally voted in favour. So uh, there's a lot of divisions. So they, this was back in the 17th century, they tried to bolt it together, and so they built a catechism. Now you know what a catechism is? If you're a good Catholic, you would know this. That the catechism is a series of questions and answers to help you remember what is important in the faith. So they wrote one called the Shorter Westminster Catechism. And the very first question is, the, the, the rest of it gets a bit dull, but the first question is brilliant. And the first question is, what is the chief end of man? Of course, now we'd say, what is the chief end of human being? What's the purpose of being human? And the answer that the catechism gives is, people's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy God forever. 